Hi, I'm Bob Whitaker. Welcome to History Respond. Today's episode considers Assassin's Creed Discovery Tour mode, but instead of looking at this mode from the perspective of scholarship, we'll be looking at it from the perspective of museum curation and education. How does Discovery Tour mode compare with modern museum exhibits? And is there anything that Ubisoft can learn from museums when they create the new Discovery Tour mode for AC Valhalla? Conversely, are there any ways in which museums can learn from games and game mechanics, particularly with regard to living history and historical reenactments? My guest on today's show is Kyle Dalton. Kyle is the Membership and Development Coordinator of the National Museum of Civil War Medicine. He's been a museum professional for 17 years working at a variety of museums and institutions on both coasts. Kyle, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, so, Kyle, uh, we had been talking over the past couple of months, uh, both of us from our respective quarantine positions, about Discovery Tour Mode. And I had you, I basically gave you an assignment, uh, to go through and replay the Discovery Tour Modes for Assassin's Creed Origins and for Assassin's Creed Odyssey. And I'm wondering, you know, from your position as a museum professional, as a museum educator, what did you make of Assassin's Creed Discovery Tour mode for these two games? From uh, from my place as a museum professional, as you say, uh, especially in history museums, it did things that museums can't do, uh, but it also highlights why museums can't be replaced. Um, I really enjoyed the Discovery Tour in Odyssey. Uh, it was much more focused than Origins. Um, there were so many tours in Origins, were like 70 tours. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's only, I think, about 30 in Odyssey. Uh, they were much better able to focus on higher quality tours that dug deeper into some topics. Uh, in Origins, I remember their tour on um, domesticated animals felt really half-baked. Mm. But Odyssey was really able to kind of dig down uh, on the things that they were most interested in. Um, one reason that I think that these work so well in ways that museums can't really operate is that games are designed for individual people. It's mm-hmm. a design for one player at a time. Even multiplayer games, the individual copy is created for an individual experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not like museums. Museums tend to focus on groups of people. Most people who go to a museum go with other people, families especially. Uh, so they're able to to curate experiences to individuals uh, in a way that museums really can't match. So that's one way that they can, they can do things that museums can't do. Um, but again, it also highlights why museums can't be replaced by this. Mm-hmm. One thing I found myself doing as I was exploring these tours was I would have follow-up questions. I'd want to know about uh, something they may have thought of offhand, uh, something that was included in the tour that wasn't the focus of the tour, but I wanted to know more about it. At a museum, you usually have somebody nearby that you can ask, uh, a docent. Uh, in art museums, uh, a lot of the guards are trained mm-hmm. in being curators or uh, docents as well. Uh, so you're able to do follow-up questions. You're able to dig deeper while you're there. And you can't really do that in Discovery Tour. It's not even really possible. Uh, even if they wanted to um, make that available to people, uh, I, I just don't see how you can anticipate yeah. all the things every player would want to yeah. know. Yeah. Uh, and it, it doesn't look good in Discovery Tour to say, I don't know. <laughs> see if you can get away with that. Yeah. Uh, so I think that these are things that can coexist. Uh, I think that there's a lot of potential to Discovery Tour. Um, but I think that, again, there, there are some ways that it just can't match a museum experience and the way that museums aren't a replacement for open world video games. Sure, absolutely. I think it's interesting, you know, you talk about museums having to think about groups, whereas Discovery Tour Mode thinks about individuals and the individual player. Um, I, uh, as a historian, I have been to many museums over the past couple of decades, and unfortunately, my family now refuses to go into museums with me. (laughs) So my museum experience is that of an individual because my family know that I'm going to sit there and I'm going to read every single line of text and every single exhibit. I'm going to talk to the historical reenactors. Everything that I can do um, is what I do. And so, uh, you know, I thought the Discovery Tour mode was interesting because it for me, it mimics the museum experience, but I know that that, that makes me an outlier. Um, and one of the other things that you brought up I thought was interesting is, 
you know, this idea that, um, you know, Discovery Tour, you can't, you know, turn around and ask a docent or you can't ask a, a museum educator about the exhibits or about a display. And, you know, I think if I was looking at it from the perspective of a game designer, you know, maybe you could have a search feature or maybe a frequently asked questions section uh, for the players. But even then, I think that those kinds of uh, elements, like you kind of alluded to, could be seen as kind of impinging on the authority of uh, Ubisoft portrayal of history in these Discovery Tour modes. And it, it could bring up kind of some complicating uh, aspects to what they're doing that they don't really want to go into or they don't really have time to go into. And to be fair, you see that a lot in museums too. Yeah. Um, many museums are trying to curate their message. Uh, there are several studies that show, um, one being the National Attitudes Usage and Awareness Survey uh, through Impacts by Colleen Dillenschneider. They show that museums are among uh, the most trusted institutions uh, in the nation, mm -hmm. uh, above the books, professors, and colleges we get our information from. <laughs> that uh, does not surprise me. <laughs> really well trusted. Um, and I think 97% of people, according to an American Association of Museums survey, 97% of people see museums as vital to education. Mm. Uh, so we do tend to curate our message and play it safe. That's one of the reasons we became so uh, trusted. Um, but I think that both Ubisoft and museums could be more comfortable with being questioned. Mm. I think we could be more comfortable with saying, I don't know. But like I mentioned earlier, it doesn't sound good, uh, especially in a context where uh, video games, you only have so much you can do. You can only record so much information. Yeah. Uh, whereas a, a museum docent or staff person would be able to you know, call up that information or walk over to the library. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think we need to be comfortable with doing that. And I think that uh, the discovery tours sometimes do touch on that. Sometimes they'll say like, we don't really know why this thing happened, but here's some theories. Mm -hmm. And I really like that. Um, some museums are very good at that, others not so much. Uh, but yeah, I think that, that we should be comfortable with being uncomfortable. Yeah. Why do, you, why do you think it is that museums are so trusted? I, I have my own ideas, but I'm curious what you think. Oh, there are a million theories out there. Uh, <laughs> personally, I think uh, it is, to kind of go back to my previous answer, because we've played it safe for so long. Mm -hmm. Museums, uh, a museum experience is maybe an hour, maybe two hours. You're not there for very long. You really can't get a lot of details across, uh, details that people will remember anyway. Um, you're getting big picture stuff. Museums and, and the discovery mode are similar in that both of them are based on tangential learning. Mm -hmm. uh, you're picking up just big ideas and it's up to you then to get interested and do other things. We're inspiring curiosity. Uh, to use the words of Kristen Butler. Uh, museums exist to get people interested and get a couple of big ideas across, maybe. Yeah. Uh, but it's really up to us to just inspire, and that's what Discovery Tour does. Uh, but that means that our message is necessarily not going to be that deep. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a rare time that you get somebody whose views are changed by a museum. Mm -hmm. And museums tend instead to go the other direction. They tend to tell reassuring messages. Mm -hmm. They tend to avoid those uncomfortable topics. Uh, and that doesn't challenge our audience, so our audience feels trusting. Mm -hmm. uh, that has put us in a nice place where we can be more heard when we do make those challenging statements. Again, we're very well trusted uh, in the general public. But uh, one of the reasons we got there is we just weren't saying things that were really challenging. Mm, interesting. Yeah, I think that that's true. And I, I would also add maybe that the physicality of museums makes a big difference. You know, I can say as a historian, somebody who lectures and then also, um, you know, creates secondary sources that a lot of my audience are frustrated when there isn't a picture or there isn't some sort of physical object to go along with what I'm saying. And that's, true, that's, yeah. that's kind of one of the reasons why I appreciate Discovery Tour Mode so much, because uh, it's not simply a 
uh, you know, in previous versions of Assassin's Creed, they had this thing called the um, the Codex, basically, where you would go in and you'd have a database of historical entries to go along with what you were playing with. And those are really secondary sources, the kind of things that I would write, like an encyclopedia article, for instance. And those were unfulfilling for players. You know, I've talked to several yes. people at Ubisoft and said that, you know, people didn't really interact with the database or the Codex at all. Uh, but they are interested in Discovery Tour mode, and I think it's because of that the physicality of it and the interactive nature of it. It's not simply a static uh, set of words, uh, but instead it's something that you can see and you can interact with, you can move around with. And I think that that has a lot to do with why museums and maybe to a certain extent Discovery Tour mode are so popular. Yeah, I think you're right. People really like to be transported mm -hmm. and museums do that. Most people go to museums for entertainment. Most people do not go to museums to learn. That's a secondary or even tertiary uh, objective. Mm -hmm. uh, most people go to museums to have a good time. Most people play games to have a good time. Mm -hmm. There aren't that many people who are like, wow, I really need to learn about Ptolemy the third. I better open up Assassin's Creed Origins. <laughs> Uh, they Kyle, do because... those people are fools. Let me tell you. <laughs> exactly. <yeah. laughs> uh, there are very few people that do either games or museums strictly to learn. And if they're doing it for that reason, they're not going to learn that much. Mm -hmm. um, museums are obviously better than video games for that. At least we're filled with generally factual information. But uh, it, it can be a limiting way to approach it. And people who do go with the uh, motivator of having fun do learn more than those who go to learn. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's, again, something that, that we're getting out of discovery mode. Discovery mode is fun. It's fun to go back in time. It's fun to see this stuff. Uh, and again, it's not a replacement for museums. In museums, you see the real thing. You can see actual sarcophagi. Mm -hmm. um, at, at my museum, you can see actual surgical kits that were used on amputations in the Civil War. There's not that many places the average person can go and just be in the room with the tangible artifacts of the past. Yeah. So yeah, I think I think both of those are ways of getting people's trust uh, through engagement, through just having them have a good time. They want to believe. They want to enjoy. Yeah. And just to go back to Discovery Tour mode, uh, what do you think of the sequencing of their tours? I mean, because I think the ways in which they've set up both the tours for Origins and for Odyssey, it's kind of similar to an audio tour that you would get during a museum, or at least I had that experience. And I'm wondering, from your perspective, what did you make of their approach to the sequencing of the exhibits? And then also within the exhibits, you know, how long it took to get through all the material uh, within Actually, those sections? Uh, largely enjoyed it. Um, Museum audiences and video game audiences, uh, they're not going to want to sit through a very long guided tour, mm -hmm. especially if you're not able to have a conversation, mm. uh, which is something that I think museums don't always succeed at. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure we've all had the death march tour uh, with a docent who isn't taking any questions. Uh, it's, it's not a fun experience. People don't want to do that. Um, one thing I will say is that when I, I did uh, Odyssey first, the Discovery uh -huh. Tour of Odyssey, before I did Origins. And so when I fired up Origins and it immediately threw me into a tour, I was instantly turned off, mm. uh, especially because it was a topic that I wasn't interested in. Mm. I'm not into architecture, city planning, and that sort of, I don't want to say inhuman, but impersonal sort of history. Right. And that's, that's uh, the first tour for that one is of the, I think the city walls for Alexandria. Yes. Yeah. And, and you walk a little bit into the city, but like you don't interact with anybody. You have no control. It just drops you in there. You don't choose that tour. You're on this tour now. Uh, I think that improved with Odyssey, where it very much is, this is an open world. You can take it in any order you want. Uh, go and see what you want. And uh, it didn't have a trophy system, too, which I kind of liked because that meant that you were the sole motivator. It didn't uh, say you have to do this number of tours to get a trophy. It was entirely up to you whether you wanted to complete these things or not. And that is how museums uh, should be uh, orienting themselves to audience engagement. As you said, uh, you like to read every panel. Uh, <laughs> that's not true for all visitors, but it is true for some. Yeah. And you need to accommodate both kinds of people, the people who are going to kind of, you know, go quickly through the museum and the people who are going to read every single word. And uh, again, not every museum does a great job of that. 
uh, it's something that that we all struggle with. There's no formula for how to do that perfectly. But I do feel that Odyssey's Discovery Tour was better at that than Origins was. Mm, yeah. And what do you think, I mean, just as a kind of a general view, what do you think of the divide between the kind of, um, I guess, physical representation of the museum material through the written word or through kind of audio, uh, the audio tours? Because I mean, I could go either way and I feel like it kind of depends on what the museum is about, what the subject matter is. But I'm just curious as a museum professional, what do you think of that divide? Do you like, you know, one or the other, or do you kind of like a mix of both? Uh, I think it depends very much on the museum. So, uh, for example, the uh, National Museum of African American History has some of the best exhibit design I've ever seen. I can't wait to go there. I haven't been. Oh, it is it is like magic what they've yeah. done. Uh, just walking through the space, you could not read a word and get some of the big picture ideas out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, the way that uh, it begins with uh, descending in an elevator and you enter a space that's pre-slave trade, pre-transatlantic slave trade. Mm -hmm. And on one wall is European history. On the other is African history. And they slowly come together to a point, to a bottleneck. Mm -hmm. And what's crazy is that in museum exhibit design, you usually try to avoid bottlenecks, but that that led led directly into the uh, transatlantic slave trade and mimics the crowding nature of these two worlds colliding together, uh, both literally on the slave ship and in general, culturally, these two cultures that that clashed uh, and melded at the same time. And it was such an amazing experience, but it required, it was required because of the size of that museum and the number of people that are going through it. It's one of the most popular museums in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas a museum like one that I used to work at, Historic London Town in um, uh, Annapolis, uh, Maryland, is a fairly small museum. It only gets uh, a few thousand people a year, I think 5,000 visitors a year. Mm-hmm. And it's very open. It's very big. There's um, two reconstructed buildings, three, I think, uh, and an original uh, tavern that was the largest tavern in the area, this big brick manor house. And you can't direct people like that. There's no way that you can say, you have to go to this building first. They're going to jump around. Uh, It was also a museum that had a very small collection. There weren't Mm -hmm. a lot of original artifacts, whereas the Museum of African American History is chock-a-block with artifacts. There's (laughs) so many. There's thousands of them. So it all very much depends on the museum. What story are you trying to tell? What are your resources? Where are you? What's your visitation like? Every museum has to make different decisions for itself. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do think all of them can can learn a little bit uh, from the experiences people have uh, in video games. Mm. So... Uh, just to wrap up our talk of discovery tour mode, are are there any notes that you would have for the developers at Ubisoft about how they've set up their tour modes? Anything that you would hope to see going forward in new modes? I know you you got some pointed notes already for Origins, but I'm curious about <laughs> their improved version in Odyssey. Yeah, I think that there's uh, a couple of things that they could still improve on. One thing that I uh, initially enjoyed and then ended up not enjoying at all were the quizzes at the Mm. end of the tour. Um, At first it was kind of like, oh, I didn't expect this. This is kind of fun. Oh yeah, I remember uh, what's his name or what's the place. But as you can tell by the words I just substituted there, (laughs) I don't remember any of that. None of that actually stuck with me. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's such an old school way of teaching history. Uh, It was very much like names and dates and some very basic concepts instead of the big picture stuff. You know, why is this important? Why do we care? And that's a lot harder to do uh, with, with a video game where you can't have a conversation. Um, but the quiz isn't a good replacement for it. And I found myself trying to remember vocabulary, uh, so that I could do well on the quiz at the end. Mm -hmm. And instead of actually like enjoying and engaging with the stuff that I saw, Mm. um, another one that I would actually echo from you, uh, when you did your first, uh, podcast on, uh, origins discovery mode is, uh, to use more of the animations that are in the game, Mm -hmm. use the assets they've already created. They did a better job than in origins. Uh, there were like the wine, for example, a lot more of that. I also liked that they use the cinematic camera more often in odyssey, even Mm -hmm. though it takes away control from the player it gives you the best possible view instead of you just standing there statically looking at a wall or something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that was good, but 
when I did the battles, the the military history side of it, they had static flags. Yes, yeah. And that's like the main thing for Odyssey is it's the Peloponnesian War and you're watching hoplites kill each other. Why not just reuse those animations? Why not use those models? You've already spent however many millions of dollars to make it. I know. Uh, It was a very strange uh, diversion from, from what was working in the other tours. Uh, so I think that they could definitely use more of the assets they already have. Mm-hmm. It would be way more interesting uh, narratively, uh, and, and it would uh, not really cost them anything. They've already created yeah. those models. Yeah, you would assume it wouldn't cost them anything. I don't want uh, no, to guess. That's fair. Yeah, I'm not a game with the, yeah. <laughs> But it is, you know, I think the the one that struck me with Odyssey were the flags uh, in the battle uh, histories and. You know, it's so funny because the battles are such a huge part uh, of that game. It basically, you know, when you're playing through the single player mode, you have to engage with the yeah. battles at several points. And it just seems so out of place to have those the physicality of the battles taken away from them uh, and replaced with flags. And I mean, I almost wonder, I would assume that the development team for Discovery Tour is different from the development team for the actual game. And it mm. might be the case that somebody on the Discovery Tour, you know, mode development team was really inspired by the way in which battles are particularly usually portrayed on, um, you know, television documentaries where it is kind of like oh. these abstract flags used to represent armies and then they kind of run into each other. Uh, on, uh, you know, a map battlefield, basically, Mm -hmm. and then they fall over, which is, you know, designates which side lost or they get burned up or something like that. So that kind of abstraction, it reminded me of something from the world of historical documentaries, television documentaries in particular, not necessarily something that you would find um, in a museum or something that you would expect from this multi-million dollar uh, game that already has all of the battles uh, included. I think another side of that, and this is something museums also aren't great at, um, is that they weren't quite up to the personal perspectives angle yet. Mm -hmm. It didn't make you think about, especially in the military history ones, it was really obvious it didn't make you think about what was the experience of the average hoplite. Yeah. What was the experience of the average Persian, mm-hmm. uh, Persian soldier. Um, and again, museums aren't always great at that either. Um, we're trying to better integrate stories at the National Museum of Civil War Medicine. Um, but it's something that audiences want to hear. Not only has academic history been better at including those perspectives, uh, but so has popular culture in general. Yeah. Uh, many uh, historical films now are about the lower classes. Yeah. They're about perspectives we're not used to. And they really have learned that they need to be more about the story and the characters than they are about just history is important. Here you go. Yeah. And I think that's true. I mean, I, this is definitely what I've seen in lecturing and writing secondary sources is that people are caught up in the personal narratives, the kind of personalized stories of the past and they are turning away i think from what you might call the kind of grand sweep of history the abstract uh, events like industrialization and urbanization and colonization yeah. those things are are too abstract for them and they prefer to have uh, a a vignette you know to illustrate those points rather than having um, you know this kind of abstracted story of these big historical events without any people I would say it's also old hat, uh, especially Mm -hmm. for museums. These stories, these big overarching stories are so Mm -hmm. well-tread. How many books are there on the general history of the Battle of Gettysburg? Mm -hmm. It is not that interesting to your average museum visitor anymore. (laughs) They've heard that story a million times. If they haven't heard that story, it's very easy for them to find. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So I think that it's new, it's interesting, uh, and it's just a better narrative. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. So beyond Discovery Tour mode, are there any other depictions of museums in video games that you find interesting? Uh, Museums do show up here and there in games, uh, often not in the best light. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) uh, Usually this is very passive. Museums are seen as sterile places, kind of cold. Uh, it's, It's a place that you pass through 
uh, going somewhere else, or mm -hmm. you're going there to sell an artifact or pick up an artifact, or you get a side quest to bring an artifact back. Mm -hmm. um, they're very much about acquisition. They're more about the objects as points than they are the objects being important, mm -hmm. I would say. Um, but museums aren't often a focal point in games. They're usually just a thing that's kind of thrown in there. And I don't want to be too critical of, uh, of these depictions of them because museums have kind of invited that on themselves. Um, museums aren't doing a good job of conveying the differences between types of museums, the exciting uh, immersive, immersive experiences you can have. Um, we haven't done a great job of public relations beyond the popular depiction of museums. Mm -hmm. So games are really just picking up the ball from what all the other mediums have done, mm -hmm. books and movies. Um, Night at the Museum was a history museum. It was also a science museum, and it was also an art museum. Uh, <laughs> that, that doesn't really exist except for those small museums in local communities, of yeah. which there are very many. I don't want to diminish that. But again, it's, we're not doing a great job of conveying what museums can be and uh, why we should expect more of them. I think the most damning depiction of museums in games was Bioshock Infinite. Mm -hmm. uh, they really gave it to us with both barrels. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm thinking of uh, the sequence in which Booker and Elizabeth go to Soldier's Field mm -hmm. and they visit the Hall of Heroes. Mm -hmm. And the Hall of Heroes is a museum, but it's also a theme park. Mm -hmm. And it's in a profoundly, explicitly racist, jingoistic, imperialist theme park mm -hmm. uh, where there are some really horrific depictions of uh, American Indians, uh, of uh, the Chinese mm -hmm. uh, through the Boxer Rebellion. And they don't really look at the consequences of conflict. Uh, they, they glorify the, uh, the adventure and fun of war. Uh, and it was a really hard thing to watch uh, mm -hmm. as a museum professional, because there's a lot of truth to that. There mm -hmm. are a lot of museums that don't examine the consequences of armed conflict, uh, that do buy into this sort of myth-making and imagined past that can be very damaging. Mm -hmm. um, institution that comes to mind right away would be Colonial Williamsburg. Mm. Uh, now, part of that is that this institution, Colonial Williamsburg, is almost 100 years old. It was founded in the 20s by the Rockefellers. Mm -hmm. uh, and the Rockefellers were not historians. Uh, they were people who uh, had an imagined past. They wanted to experience their idea of 18th century Virginia. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's hard baked into the core of this institution. And they've been struggling with that for decades. Uh, so, I, I, again, I don't want to put them down. They're trying to figure out how to make it work. But they have this constant struggle between telling the hard truths of slavery, of armed conflict, and also selling polyester tricorns and ice cream on the street. Uh, and it comes off in this kind of creepy, dissonant way. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think we're seeing that reflected in their, in their attendance numbers that are starting to go down. Mm -hmm. they, they haven't quite figured out how to make that balance. I don't know what that answer is. I know they're trying very hard, but it did really hurt to see a depiction like that uh, in Bioshock Infinite, knowing that museums could be much more and seeing that we haven't quite succeeded. Yeah. I think it's interesting you bring up Bioshock Infinite because the Bioshock series, beyond the museum depiction uh, or uh, amusement park depiction that you get in Infinite, uh, that series is really famous for uh, environmental storytelling. Uh, so beyond just kind of depicting a museum, there's all sorts of previous Bioshock games in which you go along and you are finding old audio recordings, you are finding old uh, records, you are finding old letters, correspondence, etc. Uh, that are stitching together the story of the game world for the player. And I've always felt that that kind of storytelling has a lot in simpler you know with museums um you know and with going to the archive as a historian but it's kind of less like an archive because you have all of the juiciest bits of detail just sitting out there waiting for you to discover it and you can pass that material by or you can sit there and really dive deep into it so I mean, I think that I can't speak for the developers at 2K, but I think that the you know, creators of the Bioshock series thought a lot about uh, museums when they were not just creating Infinite, but then also thinking about environmental storytelling. Yeah, I like to think that they did. Uh, it, it does have this 
um, feeling of even when you're dealing with like really dark themes and mm-hmm. really like hard to watch sequences, you want more. You want to keep exploring. You want to find out all the things that are hidden. And I think that's something that, that museums can and sometimes do uh, do very well. Um, so, so I think, yeah, I think you're right. There's, there's something to be said there. I think it also shows something that we as museums can learn from video games, uh, rewarding exploration. Mm. Museums aren't always great at saying, Hey, you came over to this little area that other people haven't gone. Here's something really cool. Uh, and that can be especially useful in large institutions or places that have uh, a lot of space to move around. Mm-hmm. So my museum, the National Museum of Civil War Medicine, we have three locations, and two of them are original buildings from the 19th century. There's pretty narrow hallways. You really can't move around that much, um, and it's a much more curated story. But our third location, which we're converting into an outdoor classroom, uh, is the Pry Field Hospital. It's an original field hospital on Antietam National Battlefield. But it also includes a barn, a house, big open fields. It gives us an opportunity to reward exploration by saying, hey, you came over to this corner of the barn. Check out this cool thing mm-hmm. that other people might not see because you took the effort to explore. That encourages that curiosity, uh, exactly the thing that we're trying to do. Mm. Yeah, so you, you kind of stepped on my next question, which is fine. Uh, you know, What are some of the other things that you think museums can learn from not just video games, but then maybe game mechanics? as well. I think the number one thing we could learn is how to do gamification properly. Mm-hmm. Um, we've learned from other mediums. Uh, we we have lectures on site a lot uh, at most museums, um, but we've also learned from less obvious sources. Uh, as much as I was ragging on Bioshock, or not Bioshock Infinite, but the way we were depicted in Bioshock Infinite, mm-hmm. we do actually learn from theme parks uh, for large institutions crowd control, uh, flow, uh, those things, you're really only going to learn from theme parks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it's a great uh, medium to draw from for those things. We've also learned from theater. Uh, museum theater has long been uh, utilized for telling stories in, in engaging ways. I think that video games are helpful to us because they're inherently interactive. You can't have a video game without interactivity, mm-hmm. period. Uh, neither theme parks nor theaters really carry those across. You've got a few exceptions in there, you know, improv theater, but even that is mostly done by the actors, mm-hmm. not predicated on the audience uh, really being the center of attention. So I think video games do that, and, and we can learn how to use gamification properly. Past attempts at gamification in museums have made the game the point, not the content. Mm. And that used to be the way that video games were. Uh, yeah. It was all about points and levels and lives. But we've since moved away from that. And it's become much more about intrinsic motivators, about uh, the world itself uh, being the thing that you want, yeah. uh, that you're trying to have experiences within the world. And museums, when we use gamification, we don't really do that. There's a lot of um, content for kids, especially, that are just scavenger hunts. And it's, can you find this? And that is an old school video game thing. That's, you know, go bring me so many chickens. Well, you don't care about the chickens. You put the chickens in your haversack somehow and walk (laughs) back to the museum. Uh, But in museums, the content should be the point. The whole reason we exist is to tell stories. Uh, And if you're telling the kid, okay, your parents are going to have a museum experience, but you need to go find the squirrels in every room, they aren't getting a museum experience. That happens a lot in museums. Uh, and I think that's something that, that we could toss out the window. Hmm. I think we could focus much more on having immersive experiences in the museum where we use game mechanics, uh, but we don't advertise it as a game. We mm-hmm. don't say, this is the game you're playing now. We just use the way that, that museum or uh, video games tell stories to tell stories in our museum. Hmm. So, just kind of a side question here. What do you make of virtual reality? What do you think about uh, the application of VR, VR headsets for enlivening the pre-existing museum experience or maybe even being a replacement for it? I think it, uh, again, depends on the kind of institution you're um, looking at. 
So like a maritime museum, it wouldn't be very helpful mm -hmm. because you're already on the ship. Yeah. Uh, you're already experiencing everything. As much as I love Obradin, it wouldn't do you much good to play that when you're already on the <laughs> ship, uh, at least in VR. It might be a little bit scary to play that while you're on the ship. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but I think that if, for example, you're at a historic site uh, where there was a former town, a lost mm -hmm. town, uh, and this is something they, they tried to do at historic London town, um, is you could use VR to see the original buildings where they would have stood. Yeah. So you're in the space, but you're also getting something extra. It has to be an addition to the experience, not a replacement of the yeah. experience. Yeah. I think the only exception to that that comes to mind right away are um, plane and train museums, uh, aviation museums and car museums, because you can't take those cars for a spin. You can't <laughs> fly the F-15. So having a simulator in there that you can use uh, is pretty cool. Yeah. But that's a pretty limited experience. Uh, and most museums wouldn't find a use for that in the same way. You'd much rather actually experience the museum you're inside. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, just speaking for myself, I, I enjoy VR as much as the next gamer, but I think that, and when you're in a museum and, you know, part of the huge attraction, at least for me, for a museum is the physicality of it and being able to be close to uh, actual historical ephemera or documents. And, you know, that's the whole reason why I got interested in history to begin with is because of the physicality of it, you know, and um, that's why I'm a modern historian and not an ancient or medieval <laughs> historian is because I, when I go in the archive, I get to touch the documents, you know, that's, yeah. that's the moment that is, that I live for. Um, not so much recently because of the virus, but, you know, hopefully oh, sure. <laughs> one day <laughs> I'm hoping I don't need to use a VR headset to go back to uh, the National Archives. Um, but, yeah, I, I think I think you're right. I think it, it can't replace uh, the attraction, the, you know, the capabilities of a museum, uh, especially when you've got physical structures or reenactors who can kind of bring that history to life for you. Yeah, and uh, that's one area that I've really explored in using gamification in museums properly. Mm. Uh, living history seems like a pretty obvious route to go on that. Uh, living history is sort of the professional term for reenactors. Gotcha. Um, and uh, in living history, uh, you've already got a lot of things going on. You've got uh, a lot of reproductions, which means that people can handle them. People can pick up pots. People can handle metal objects. They don't have to put on gloves and have a curator looking over their shoulder if they were ever allowed to touch it in the first place. Right. They can sit by the fire. They can smell the tobacco smoke. Um, it's something that is already really immersive. Yeah. Uh, and not all museums can do living history, but those that can uh, are already usually kind of an open world setting. Uh, you usually have to have enough space that you can have tents cast about or people cooking in a cookhouse, uh, that kind of thing. So it's already got a uh, similar experience to an open world game. The problem, I think, is that we've too often taken um, theater and exhibit design as our model for living history. Hmm. Again, both of those have something to offer to museums, but with a living history context, you're taking something inherently interactive and making it not interactive. It's being talked at. Yes. Uh, it's you get to see this stuff, but you can't really do anything with it. Uh, so what I did at uh, my last museum at London Town, which I've mentioned a couple of times, um, is I had some reenactors approach me and say they wanted to do an immersion weekend. This is a thing that reenactors do um, to get away from the public. Uh, they ha they try to be as in period as possible. Mm -hmm. uh, they only have accurate clothing. They only have food that would be appropriate for the location and the season uh, and using recipes that existed at the time um, down to like the beer they drink has to be period accurate. Mm. It's as close to the period as they can get. Understandably, uh, my museum uh, was like, no, that needs to be open to the public. Uh, <laughs> doesn't really make sense for us to host you guys, you know, and, and like not let other people in. We're a museum. Yeah. Uh, we're public focused. And there are some museums that do that because they see that as cultivating their volunteer base. Mm -hmm. But for my museum, it was, no, this needs to be something that other people can experience. And that's when I really started digging into how video game mechanics can work. So I focused on side quests. I, I assigned characters that were actual people that lived in the town uh, to our various volunteers. 
and I ask them to help develop side quests for their characters. Mm. What does your character want and how can the public help with that? There was a lot of le letter delivery. Um, we had a uh, convict servant who was asking boys to steal things for him. <laughs> to escape. Yeah. Um, we had a, a whole bunch of things like that. Uh, somebody uh, in the last one they did printed a newspaper that included side quests that people could pick up on uh, from this 18th century looking newspaper, many mm -hmm. of which were original art, um, articles drawn from the Maryland Gazette in the 18th century. Uh, and it was such a huge success. Uh, we had a ton of people through the door, uh, and everybody had a great time. Uh, eventually we, we developed a longer narrative where two, um, patriarchs, two heads of household got into conflict over debts and had a duel at the end of the day. Oh. And members of the public became the seconds for that duel. Oh, wow. So they had to make life or death decisions. Mm -hmm. Do you load the full powder? Do you leave the pan empty? Uh, do you put the bullet in? Uh, and it was such an amazing way of concluding the day and making it feel like there was an overarching plot. So I do think that there are ways that uh, game narrative theory can be applied to living history yeah. pretty easily that would definitely up the experience. Yeah, and you know what you described, it reminds me a lot of at least for the college classroom of reacting to the past, which is kind of these uh, course length um, live action role playing games that students can engage with on a particular topic. You know, there's ones for uh, the uh, uh, American Revolution, you know, the Continental Congress. Uh, there's some for, um, you know, John Brown, Harper's Ferry, um, these sorts of, you know, major events and allowing students to take on roles of the major participants. And, you know, that sort of live action role playing game, it's becoming much more popular in college courses throughout the country. And it seems, you know, as what you've described, it seems like a natural fit. That kind of thinking seems like a natural fit for what's going on with uh, historical reenactors. Uh, oh, definitely. And I think that there are... Um museums that can be uh, much bigger than what I was able to accomplish. Mm -hmm. uh, Strawberry Bank comes to mind, Plymouth Plantation. Those are both really big sites that have a lot of buildings and a lot of people in costume already. It wouldn't be too hard for them to apply that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I do think though that we also have to be careful to not see this as a one-to-one. -one. We have to see video games as an inspiration, not a strict guide. Mm -hmm. Uh, like I said earlier, these are video games are constructed around individual engagement, a single person. Uh, and that's something that you can run into with side quests is you can give a task to one person, but they're in a whole party. Yeah. Does that change the dynamic? Mm -hmm. Are they all being engaged or are they just following this guy around who's really into it? <laughs> um, it's also one thing that I ran into with the Immersion Weekend is that uh, video games don't have a great track record for teaching difficult topics. And I found it especially difficult to really integrate the story of slavery. Mm. The town that we were uh, portraying uh, was 60% enslaved by 1776. It was vast majority uh, African and African-American. Mm -hmm. um, slave ships went there uh, fairly regularly. Uh, it was a town that was majority enslaved. And that's not true for almost any reenactment. Uh, it is overwhelmingly white. And we only had one African-American volunteer, very brave woman, uh, Nastasha Parker. And she developed a side quest, not unlike the convict servant, where she asked members of the public to steal things for her so that she could make her escape. And that proved to be way too much. Uh, that was uh, a lot uh, that she took on. Again, very mm -hmm. brave to do so. But it was psychologically taxing. Sure. Uh, and beyond that individual problematic uh, event, uh, we also, again, weren't portraying the real thing. Yeah. Tangential learning cuts both ways. If people are looking around and they're seeing white faces everywhere, they're gonna make that reasonable assumption that that's what the town looked like, especially yeah. when yeah. we're selling ourselves on being authentic. Yeah, yeah. So that's something that, I, that, that we have to be very careful about. Uh, we can't apply these things one-to-one. -one. We can't just say, Video games did this, therefore it's okay for us. We should see it as a place of inspiration. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right about that. Uh, well, besides uh, games related to museums and uh, Discovery Tours, what else have you been playing? Oh, uh, I've been playing some Red Dead Redemption. 
Um, the first game, actually, when it was made in, in um, San Diego by Rockstar San Diego, I lived up in a, a little gold mining town, Julian, mm. uh, and some of the developers came up there to do research for it. Oh, wow. So there's certain nostalgia that comes with that, uh, that, that, you know, this kind of, oh, this feels a little bit like home. I'm sure I'm murdered. <laughs> uh, so I've been playing some of that. Uh, obviously, the Assassin's Creed games, mm-hmm. um, Bioshock Infinite. Uh, I've been enjoying Mafia 3. Oh, great, uh, so, yeah. Yeah, a number of, I've been kind of bouncing back and forth uh, between a few of them. I recently wrapped up um, Call of Duty World War II. Okay. Um, which was an interesting experience. Yes. An <laughs> uneven experience. Yes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, what do you make of Red Dead Redemption 2 and the way that they adapt American history? Um, and in particular, I'm, I'm wondering you know, what do you make of the sequencing in that game? Because in Red Dead 1, it's kind of aping the styles of uh, spaghetti westerns, you know, a lot of the kind of narratives and themes from that. But in Red Dead 2, it seems like they're going for more serious topics. And the sequencing, I think, would feel off for players in the sense that the game basically goes from west to east rather than east to west. Yeah, I think that uh, I see Red Dead 2 more as a post-Western. And I think you see this most explicitly in um, their clear inspiration from Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Yes, yeah. Where, uh, like, some of the scenes are just straight up lifted from Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. And I love that movie, don't get me wrong. Uh, (laughs) But it it, uh, still doesn't feel like it's trying to be strict history. Mm Mm-hmm even if it's marketing itself on that. Yes. There's a little bit of dissonance there. Yeah, um, It still feels very much like a post-Vietnam Western. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's closer to Clint Eastwood than John Wayne. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's, uh, yeah, it's an, interesting, it's an interesting experience going to the East. And I do think that that opened some interesting narrative opportunities for them. By moving to the South uh, in the post-Civil War era, that allowed them to tell stories that, uh, they could tell in the West, but they'd have to do a lot more research for Yeah, yeah. Uh, whether they were totally successful in that is another story, but they made the attempt. They did make uh, the attempt, and I think they might deserve a little bit of credit for that. I mean, you know, I'm thinking of the ways in which they depicted the South in that game, and, you know, you run into uh, several groups, several gangs, competing gangs that are made up of former Confederate soldiers and they do a little bit of questioning of the motivations for those groups in a way that I think is inspired by, you know, uh, you would mention uh, Clint Eastwood Westerns, um, you know, Outlaw Josie Wales comes to mind. Um, And I think they interrogate that subject a little bit more in depth than, say, the Clint Eastwood movies did, uh, where it's just kind kind of papered over as to, you know, where does Josie Wales come from, what his ideology is. Um, and, uh, you know, similar things could be said for Eastwood's later movies like Unforgiven. Uh, and so I think they deserve a little bit of credit for broaching the topic, but how successful they were in doing that, I, yeah, I, I agree with you. I'm not sure it was that great. And I think, again, there's, there's a lot that can be said for the West. Um, I've recently been reading a couple of books on um, the Reconstruction West and the racial politics out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's so it's such a great narrative uh, atmosphere because you have the encroachment of civilization, which is being a, uh, a Western theme. Uh, I see it more as uh, civilization replacement instead mm-hmm. of civilization encroachment. Mm-hmm. But again, you have this civilization coming in that is biracial by nature and has mm-hmm. been for centuries. And they're entering a multiracial atmosphere. Um, being from Southern California, I'm especially interested in the ways that Californios and Mexicans were differentiated mm-hmm. uh, and how they'd already had a system by which they were oppressing the American Indians in the area, the Chumash, the Kumeyaay. Uh, and then you have the Chinese entering the picture. Yeah. Uh, which becomes the major um, battleground for racial politics in the West. And they don't even really appear in the Red Dead series. I know, I know. It's a big disappointment. And I think, like you said, uh, though, if they were to stay in the West, it becomes much more complicated with regards to race, with regards to ethnicity, than it appears, at least in historical memory, it appears uh, in the East, where things... 
uh, are very divided, but they seem, at least from the public's perspective, from general historical memory, it seems more settled. It seems easier to understand than the outlines that you gave us just now of, you know, kind of racial and ethnic differences in the West. Right. And it gets down to uh, what are they trying to do? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Is their goal to explore the racial nuances and very dirty hierarchy of the far West? Or is it to tell a story about this gang that dissolves? Yeah. Uh, uh, so and to so sell, I, sell this game. Forgiving, yeah. but, uh, you do also like see these opportunities as a historian uh, and, and know that like, oh, actually, we, we could have gone a little further. Yeah. And I mean, what disappoints me, and I'll, I'll end it on this, is what disappoints me is that I feel like that if they just went a little bit further, they might be able to tell more interesting and nuanced stories. You know, I think that some of the stories that they end up telling, uh, especially in Red Dead 1, but uh, also in Red Dead 2, the stories they end up telling feel rather rote. They feel rather um, kind of familiar and a little bit boring. And I feel like if they just gone a little bit further, if they were willing to step out a little bit more with regards to the history they were adapting, they would have found so many more interesting and nuanced narratives that I think would have added a lot to the game, to the story. Yeah, and uh, I, I do want to give credit where credit is due, and I still have played like 100 hours. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> so they, they did a good job of the main character especially. They did yes. a great job with his narrative arc. Um, I, I still really enjoy playing it. I'm going to keep playing it. I'll put another 100 hours on it. Mm. Uh, and and again, they're not historians, and, and I try not to be too critical for yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I think that does it for our episode. Kyle, thank you so much for joining me on the show. Certainly. Thanks for having me. And uh, Kyle, before you go, where can people learn more about you and your work? Uh, well, the National Museum of Civil War Medicine. Uh, we've got three locations in Washington, D.C., uh, Frederick, Maryland, and one on Antietam National Battlefield. I mentioned that earlier. Uh, we have a, a very robust online presence, uh, YouTube, Facebook, uh, and we're actually launching a podcast very soon, uh, the Horrors and the Healing Podcast. Uh, about the stories of Civil War medicine. Good to we'll have. Yeah, I, I we <laughs> workshop that for a long time. <laughs> uh, we're going to have uh, academic professionals, uh, professors from around the country and even internationally that will be talking about various topics related to uh, medicine in the 1860s. Wow, sounds great. Well, congratulations on your work and your podcast and good luck. Thank you. And then, again, thanks for having me. Sure. If you enjoyed this episode of History Respawn, please check out our website, www.historyrespawn.com. And if you enjoy our work and want to support us, please visit our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash History Respawn. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.